My guest today is Ray Bowman. He and I will be discussing issues related to rural Canada and policy. Ray has been the focal point in Statistics Canada for rural research and analysis since the 1990s. He initiated Statistics Canada's Rural and Small Town Canada Analysis Bulletins in 1998, and there are 62 of these bulletins now available. We'll provide a URL to them on the website. Before his retirement, he was the chief of the Rural Research Group at Statistics Canada. Hi, Ray, and welcome to Fair Talk. Yeah, thanks for calling. Ray, let me begin by asking you, how should we think about rural? What is rural? Well, different people would view it differently. Uh, you know, I'm an economist, so I would look at the price of rurality, and I would look at distance, density, and the distance to density. And that's sort of the way the uh, the World Bank uh, World Development Report in 2009 on reshaping economic geography clearly stated the issue of uh, regional geography as in density and distance to density. And so density then is, uh, you know, the advantages of agglomerated economies, and the distance to density is uh, there's the economic distance, price and time to get there, but there's social distance and psychological distance to get to density. So I would look at it as distance and density. Some people would talk about it as identity. So if you feel rural, even if you're looking and uh, living in a city, you might behave differently. I would say, gee, you know, you're facing the same relative prices in the city, whether you feel rural or not, so I don't think you'd behave differently, but maybe that's an empirical question. So uh, for some folks, when you talk about agglomeration effects being associated with the density uh, character of um, of urban and then lower density in rural, what, what are we talking about? Agglomeration effects occur in urbanizing yeah. areas? It's because of the lower cost of people living together and working together. Uh, firms, if they're beside each other in much the same industry, have lower costs because uh, they have better access to a specialized labor force. Their employees uh, would uh, maybe uh, go to the same church or uh, drink at the same bars or curl at the same curling rinks. And over the conversation, uh, just an exchange of tacit knowledge, uh, uh, would, uh, they would just exchange tidbits on how things are done in their particular occupation, in their particular industry. And if that firm was in a more remote area, that exchange of tacit knowledge just could not take place. You can read on the internet the uh, the written knowledge, but the embedded or tacit knowledge that the specialized workers have that they do not write down just cannot be exchanged over the internet. You have to do that at the elbow of the master, if you will, and that's a big advantage of, uh, of agglomerations and having both people and firms being close together. So I guess part of the idea is if you're in an urban area, if you take the same person or the same firm from a rural area and move them to an urban area, they, they may be more productive because of the exchange of this tacit knowledge and the interactions with, with uh, experts in the area. Yeah, more productive or lower cost unit of output thing, same thing. That's right. Okay, so that's part of the density issue uh, of rural. And then the distance, uh, can we think about that as, and you mentioned this is cost, uh, it takes longer to transport good and information, I guess, to uh, rural areas. Yeah, bo bo to rural areas and from rural areas. 
So, uh, in some sense, the uh, the high price of distance is an advantage for some rural firms because they have a distance tariff, and uh, so you might be able to set up a business in a rural area because it's too expensive to import that service or that facility or that yeah that service from an urban area. So the distance is a nice tariff barrier. Uh, but the other side is if you're producing something in a rural area, it's going to cost you something to uh, ship it to the urban market, and it's going to cost you something that you're going to have a harder time finding out how that niche or that product or that market is developing and how you should change your product. If you're living in the middle of the market, you would sort of have an intuitive feel how that market is changing. But if you're living away from the market and shipping into that market, you have a harder time just being with the market and uh, I don't know what color you have to do, it, what your promotion should be, how fast you have to change your good or service. So it's just not being aware of the changing market if you're at a distance and so there's a bit of higher cost on the market research side. Now, uh, I notice in a number of uh, of your writings, and and we'll we'll make these available uh, on our website. But you, you make the point, and I think it's a really important one, that that rural is not necessarily always uh, low density and remote. Sometimes it can be high density and remote. And uh, talk to me a little bit about those two issues. Yeah, well, in one of the papers you might reference there, we set up a little grid, and uh, so a uh, two-by-two table, and you could be, uh, uh, if, if we think of rurality as density and distance to density, so one on a table, one one uh, d- dimension is from a high density to low density, so as you get the higher, get the more low density, you're more rural. Uh, but those, some of those low density places, those small villages, could be in the uh, commuting shadow of a big city. So uh, some of us, if we took our spouses to these small villages that are within the commuting shadow, they would see a cow out the front window and say, "Gee, this is a really a rural place." And uh, your kids uh, would probably go to a fairly small school and have the benefits of a small school, but maybe the cost of a small school, but there might be benefits of a small school. If you wanted to become the editor of the school newspaper, uh, I'm sure you could get on the committee at least. And if you wanted to play basketball, I'm sure you can get on to the team. And But your spouse would have access back to the big city for a big city job, you know, brain surgeon, NHL trainer, or whatever. So if you're a small community, a small density, low density community within the commuting zone of a big place, you have the benefits, if you will, of low density and the advantages of short distance to density. So you could go the other way on that grid from uh, high urban, that's uh, big places, to uh, high rural, which would be uh, uh, longer, I'm going in another direction, distance. So you could be a long way from a metro center and have a pretty dense uh, town or city. Uh, Maybe you think Dauphin, Manitoba, or Mattawa, Ontario, or places like that of six, seven, eight, nine thousand people. Uh, You might have two uh, high schools in those places uh, that are very competitive basketball teams and uh, you'd have trouble making the teams. But it's a rural and small, it's a small town economy, a small town labor market. And there'd just be no jobs there for uh, your professional spouse. And if you became the 
the teacher or the principal of the school and your spouse was a dentist, uh, there's probably already one dentist in that town and there would just not be a job for your spouse. Uh, and they'd be too far away from the metro area to commute. So there is a fairly high density place looks a bit urban in some sense, but no distance, long distance to a metro job. So you can have small towns close to areas, or you can have big towns away from metro areas, two different types of rural places, and uh, different types of options, different types of opportunities, I guess different types of policy options too. I think that's a, that's a really important point. Uh, when I was working uh, in, in central Appalachia from 1995 to 1997, uh, I was confronted with this issue that there were pockets of real dense housing in relatively rural areas. And this was uh, was particularly challenging because the issue that we were working with was trying to, to address uh, sewage runoff into the river. And the primary way that was being thought about how you deal with this in rural areas is to put in septic tanks. But in this area of central Appalachia where there were pockets of very dense housing as a result these we we refer to them often as coal camp areas where where houses were developed basically row houses in a rural area to um to house workers that were working in the mines there there wasn't the kind of space to put in a septic right, tank right. and so be, and when you met oftentimes with people that were involved in it their approach to the problem was oh well you, this is a rural area and the way you deal with this uh problem is to put in septic tanks but the density was such within this rural area, in the sense that it was remote from major um, uh, cities, that the density was uh, was was quite as challenging as any urban area. Exactly, and you know the general rural observation is: uh, if you've seen one small town, you've seen one small town. <laughs> and uh, they're all different. And if you're sitting in the 13th floor of the Metro Center worrying about rural policy, or the capital city worrying about rural policy, rural areas are so heterogeneous that you just can't say, well, if it's rural, obviously it's low density and sparse, and therefore it's septic tanks, because it's just a lot of differentiation out there. And uh, But perhaps that's the first law of statistics, right? The within variability is always bigger than the between variability. So the between variability between urban and rural on average is not very big, but the variability within rural is big, and of course the variability within urban is big, which is to say be- within variability is always bigger than between variability. And I think I think it's also important to note, and, and you note this elsewhere, that if you go and you talk to residents of a quote-unquote rural community, they will reflect that uh, that very that that variation of understanding in their own discussion. So you might be in what you think is a rural community and ask them what is rural is, and they'll refer to a different place in their own county as rural. That's right. And it's all perception. You know, you could be the urban center of the county and think you're the urban, and you are the urban center of the county, and I don't know, 2,000, 4,000 people or something. And some of us might think, or certainly some of our spouses might think, that's a very rural town. And uh, colleagues at the University of Brand- Brandon University a number of years ago were doing some of this, and they were asking people in the countryside. It was more of a health issue, but uh, do you consider yourself rural? What do you consider rural? And one of the conclusions was, I think one of the conclusions was, well, rural might not be the right word, but the other conclusion was Brandon was a rural city. 
Brandon is 40,000 people in Manitoba, and many people decided it was a rural city. So it's, its perception is important, and it's not clear one should ever use the word rural. You want the local people or the residents to define it from their point of view. That's fair. I want to move into a discussion just about general trends, and I, I feel free to add numbers where you like, but talking about in general terms, we'll, we'll be fine, I think. But before I do that, I want to give me a historical context or what aspects of history, maybe starting from at whatever point you feel comfortable, should I understand to think about rural Canada? And here I'm thinking about things like uh, the initial settlements. Just uh, Yes, uh, you know, I would observe, uh, I, I guess, some of the first settlements in Canada were quite self-sufficient. But most of the history of rural Canada is uh, people moved in to export things. Uh, you know, Labrador whaling stations, uh, the cod fishery, uh, up and down the major rivers in Canada to export to lumber, the prairie wheat economy, the nickel, gold, uh, copper mines. And and so none of those none of those towns none of those societies were ever designed or started to be uh, internally or locally self-sufficient. They were all importing food and importing goods and services and exporting uh, generally raw commodities. And, uh, and and so talking about a sustainable rural community is a bit difficult given that that never really started that way. You know, uh, it seems to me, you know, I've sat around meetings saying, gee, what's the problematic in rural Canada? Well, it seems to me if you think of that history, one idea of the problematic is the increasing value of human time. Uh, T.W. Schultz's, uh, I think, his Nobel Prize uh, lecture, increasing value of human time. Well, it's one ongoing constant trend for a long, long time that the price of labor is going up relative to many other things, certainly the price of capital. And, of course, it's good that our real wages are going up. And for a rural community, well, there's such an incentive to uh, substitute machines for people in all these exporting industries that, uh, you know, the exports of wheat is up and lumber is up and nickel is up. Very few people underground in nickel mines anymore uh, and, and so on. So increased output, increased export with less and less labor, and the towns have fewer people working in these uh, in these industries. Now, can you sustain what your former population level? Yes, but only if you find something new to export, because you need fewer and fewer people to export more and more of the raison d'etre of the community in the first place. And that's the problematique, in my view, is that uh, the communities were started to export products, export commodities. You need fewer people to do it. Often there's nothing else you can imagine to export from this place. Therefore, the population has to go down. And that's, that's a, that's a long-run trend in Canada, certainly since the Second World War. Now, are there any trends in, in labor movements or the labor market with respect to Aboriginal populations that, we sh that you can talk about or that we should be aware of? Well, certainly the uh, Aboriginal population is younger, and so they're going to be contributing more than their share, perhaps, of uh, workers on the labor market over time. Uh, a couple of examples. Uh, uh, as a baseline, you might consider Yukon. 
In the Yukon, there's about one person coming onto the workforce per person leaving the workforce looking out 10, 15, 20 years. So it's quite a stable demand supply situation for labor. In Nunavut, for every person coming on, for every person retiring, there are four people coming on the workforce just by looking at the demographics. A much younger society, a lot more people coming onto the workforce uh, relative to those retiring, tremendous demand for jobs, or a tremendous demand for out-migration from Nunavut to someplace else where there might be jobs. We could talk about, uh, you know, just in the, in the prairies, uh, you probably know from just reading newspapers, uh, the prairie population, certainly in Saskatchewan, maybe 10, 15% of the population is Aboriginal now. It might be 20% in 2017. So uh, in the south, the southern provinces, uh, Saskatchewan is the most intensive in Aboriginals. But if we look at the absolute number, Ontario has the most Aboriginals of any province in Canada, uh, partly because of the big northern expanse of Ontario. You go back to uh, the demand for labor and the supply of labor coming on the market. In Saskatchewan right now, about 20% of the new people coming on the labor market, 20% of the people, 20 to 29, population, 20 to 29 years of age, uh, 20% of them are Aboriginals now in Saskatchewan. And looking out 2017, about 30% of this age group will be Aboriginal. Therefore, 2017, uh, almost a third of the new workers in Saskatchewan will be Aboriginal. I'd like to direct some questions now to uh, the relationship between agriculture and rural. There's a difference between the landscape and the peoplescape. You know, if you fly over rural Canada, you see Sometimes you see a mine, sometimes you'll see forest, and then generally the airplanes are flying over agricultural land. So you say, gee, everybody down there is farming. Well, back at the time of the Second World War, maybe, and you've got the numbers in front of you, I think maybe two-thirds of all the people in rural Canada were living on a census farm. Some of them are quite small, but still living on a, a land holding that was included in the census. And and that's two-thirds in agriculture on a farm, and that was including all the rural areas where people were mining and forestry and, and a few in the gas and ore, maybe even back then. And over time, that peoplescape has changed. Now, if you're in a rural area, maybe 10% are living in a census farm. So it's really a major change in, well, the local politics. It used to be farmers on municipal councils and farmers on school boards and, and so on because the vast majority of people in rural areas were in farming families. And a major change over time such that maybe now 10% of uh, people in rural areas and therefore on school boards and municipal councils and buying things in town, 10% of the families are agricultural. And, and it's a complete change in the peoplescape, but the landscape still looks much the same. And, and, and so the windshield survey versus the physical survey has changed a lot. Uh, and uh, you can imagine the, uh, maybe the culture and certainly the political culture has changed a lot uh, over time. So, you know, that's really interesting. So when we think about agriculture policy, uh, we think it's certainly probably still affecting the, the landscape of rural areas, but not necessarily having uh, the same impact that it had when two-thirds of the rural residents lived on census farms um, prior to World War II on people. 
That's right. I mean, back then, if you put some agricultural policy out there, it hit two-thirds of rural people. And now if you put some agricultural policy out there, it directly hits 10% of rural people. It might be a bit of a spin-off and linkage if if people driving trucks are in the truck sector and they're shipping more farm commodities, but it directly hits 10% of the rural people. Now, uh, one one other thing that I note in, in your article with Bill Reimer is that you, you point out that 20% of agriculture takes place in municipalities within census metropolitan areas. Yes, those are metro labor markets. And back to my distance and density thing, if you're in uh, the commuting zone of a, of a metro labor market, your spouse will have access to a metro-type job. And that type of job opportunity means that the rural development problematique, the rural development opportunities, the rural development approach should be quite different in the sense that uh, you know you, you have access to non-farm jobs in, in larger urban centers. And that's important. And I don't know if you should be surprised that maybe 10% of agriculture is within uh, those zones, because that would include greenhouse and nursery and, and so on, that uh, mm-hmm. have a big advantage of being close to big cities. Okay, so we talked a little bit about the trend of agriculture in terms of an, an employment in rural areas. Are there other sectors that we should take note of? Uh, if you go to these rural areas and look at the numbers, uh, you'd find that uh, up till recently, manufacturing in Canada was a bigger sector in terms of employment than agriculture. In fact, manufacturing was the biggest sector. Now, all it depends how you split out the numbers. So the numbers in the paper with Bill Reimer and myself, uh, we're looking at uh, if you can put wholesale and retail trade together, uh, 15% of people in rural and small town areas were working in the wholesale and retail sector, and 13% in manufacturing and 8% in agriculture. So if we split wholesale and retail separately, then, of course, poof, we win, manufacturing is bigger. If wholesale and retail are together, then now manufacturing is number two. It was number one four and five years ago. So one thing, you know, Bill Reimer and I were asking, gee, if uh, manufacturing is such a big sector in rural and small town Canada, would you put a rural secretariat into your agriculture ministry or in your industry ministry? I mean, just just, just to think about that. And there was hmm. only two or three provinces, two or three provinces still were manufacturing Manufacturing is the biggest sector, certainly in Quebec and uh, in New Brunswick and Ontario. Manufacturing and wholesale and retail trade look much the same. Uh, in in the West, there's a couple of provinces, say certainly in Saskatchewan and I think in Manitoba, where in rural areas, agriculture is still the biggest uh, employer of uh, of the uh, looking across all the different sectors. But uh, the Canada as a whole, manufacturing is is a big sector and almost as big as shopping, wholesale retail trade. The other interesting thing is that uh, when manufacturing goes up, it goes up faster in rural. When manufacturing goes down, it goes down slower in rural. And over time, since 1976, in one of the charts in that paper, uh, the share of manufacturing employment in rural and small town areas has slowly and continuously gone up over time. So rural areas are getting a bigger market share of the total manufacturing employment in Canada, which I have to admit has been going down for quite a few years and just recently started going up again. But if you define competitive as increasing your market share, rural is getting a bigger and bigger market share of manufacturing employment in Canada, 
which may not be a big thing to wave a flag at because uh, you're just getting a bigger part of a declining pie, but uh, still, it depends how you look at it. And it's still right. an opportunity for rural because manufacturing is an exportable and, manu- and rural is relatively competitive in, 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 ma- in manufacturing employment. And why is that? Uh, why, why is it relatively competitive? Well, p- part, part of it is connection to the uh, resource sectors. So uh, mm-hmm. sawmills, pulp and paper mills would tend to be near the resources. Not all agricultural processing is in rural areas because sometimes you need a big labor force for a big uh, processing plant and you want to ship the raw products there, whether it's uh, beef or cattle uh, or ketchup. Um, but the mining, most of the smelting would have to take place right near the mine to reduce the weight. And oil production, uh, pipelines, uh, oil expla- exploration is largely in rural areas and uh, and the spin-offs, a big share of uh, of the uh, spin-offs, both in certainly agriculture, forestry, mining, and gas and oil, is services incidental to, which is all of the background consulting work and, uh, you know, the PhDs in geology and the forestry people growing small trees and planting trees don't really get into the forestry sector. They're usually in services incidental too, and those sectors are growing, but they are driven by the local resources. So that's, an, and I guess I'll switch away from manufacturing, but that's a, they're connected to the, uh, to the uh, primary sector, but not the cutting of the trees, but it's the management of the trees and the replanting of the trees and so on. Oh, thanks. That, that was really helpful. Uh, we're already basically in the interview just a couple of minutes, and I've already learned a lot, so uh, thanks. Good. Are there any other trends in terms of income, age structure that, that you, you think you know we should talk about? Well, uh, you know, lots of people say, gee, rural is, there's a big socioeconomic deficit, a social, you know, socioeconomic deficit between urban and rural. And uh, so when we first started these series of bulletins back in 1998, we often would show the rural-urban gap in educational attainment or average wages or, or, and so on. And a colleague said, uh, come on, uh, Bowman, you're, uh, you're going to, you're never going to get rid of that gap. And you look at the numbers, for 20, 30, 40 years, in constant dollars, the rural-urban gap in income, I think this is in family income, is $10,000. Family incomes in urban are $10,000 above family incomes in rural, in constant dollars, over time, and that's been almost a straight line, almost a constant straight line. Well, a couple of ways of looking at that. One is that... uh, uh, maybe the, that's just a competitive equilibrium. Uh, some jobs in rural Canada pay less, and, uh, and, and some jobs in urban Canada pay more just because of uh, density, and you want all your brain surgeons in the city, so they, have, get, they get well-practiced up in brain surgery. And the other thing is maybe rural people accept lower incomes because the cost of living is lower in rural. And if you look at the incidence of low incomes, the incidence in low incomes in rural areas is less, uh, depending on the measure, than the incidence of low incomes in urban areas. Low incidence of low incomes in rural areas is less because the uh, cutoff lines are lower because the cost of housing is lower. And uh, so there's no difference, therefore, in well-being between rural and urban areas if you look at uh, Gini ratios or if you look at the incidence of low incomes. 
but the average incomes are lower. So back to the point of uh, what do I do with the socioeconomic gap? I don't think we want to close it. Therefore, we switch around and from a policy point of view, we say, gee, we don't want to try closing the gap because I don't think that makes sense. That's too hard. It should never happen. Maybe the point is it should never happen. Probably the point is it can never happen. So then you want to say, well, look, there's a lot of diversity across rural areas and policy people will do asset mapping. What are the assets in your community and what assets can be valorized or what aspects, what assets are underutilized, where can policy and where can local communities invest in an underutilized resource to increase the community's options and, and strategies, but don't try to close the rural urban gap on measurable outcomes uh, like uh, incomes. One other issue before kind of moving to, uh, out of the trends maybe in directly into policy, and I think we'll touch back on some of the issues that you discussed, uh, is uh, what's immigration in general in Canada? It's a big part of the increase in population, and it appears to, to be something that's going to increase. Does that, how does that work in terms of rural and urban issues? Certainly, historically, uh, immigrants largely prefer the bigger cities, Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver, and they get the vast share of new immigrants. And, uh, you know, uh, you talk to immigrants, you look at the numbers and read the story, read the history. And if you're, if you're going to move to, I don't know, pick Australia or South America or something, you would use your connections and you would talk to some Canadians or Americans that you knew there and give me some information. What's a good community to live in? Well, that's exactly how people move to Canada. They'll know somebody that knows somebody that's here. Give me some information and they'll often end up on the same street or the same apartment and so on. So there's a much lower risk and a lot more information for immigrants to move to where other immigrants already are. But you can't say that rural areas are losing because Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver attract a lot of immigrants. Downtown Toronto, typically one in 30 people, 3% arrived last year. There are some rural areas, and this year it's Winkler, Morden, and uh, Winkler, Morden, Altona, and Manitoba. Go to downtown Winkler, walk the streets. One in 30, 3% of the people in Winkler arrived last year. Winkler, an area, is just as competitive in attracting immigrants as Toronto. In fact, last year it beat Toronto. So if you look at where immigrants are moving and what share of the population are immigrants last year, what share of the immigrants are, what share of the population are immigrants in the last five years, certainly the big cities rank high, highly high. But the uh, smaller cities often do not. Uh, Quebec City or St. John's or even Halifax uh, tends to rank much lower than some of the rural areas. Uh, uh, Fort McMurray uh, in the... Um, Brooks, Alberta, the plant there, the, uh, the hog the beef processing plant. Uh, Nipawa, Manitoba, with a hog slaughter plant. Many areas in rural areas are attracting immigrants at a higher rate than the bigger cities. Now, overall, the vast numbers still go to the big cities. And a minute ago, you asked a bit about demography. The one interesting thing about demography is saying rural is not a basket case in the sense of that's not focus on this rural urban gap. The other evidence of rural is not a basket case is that since 71 or 76, and right up to the most recent census, rural areas attract more people in each age class from 25 to 69 than they lose. People vote with their feet to move to rural areas in each age group from 25 to 69. After 69, 
well, maybe I should move back to the bigger hospital. Before 25, you're moving for either jobs or fun or entertainment, uh, jobs, uh, education, or fun. And uh, so rural is a prefer- preferred location for living on a net basis, migration, voting with your feet, for each age group from 25 to 69. So, Ray, I'm, I'm really interested in... From your standpoint, what what are the objectives? How generally do we think about the objectives of rural policy? Well, I, I guess I would start with, uh, I guess, a one Economics 100 book. Uh, but it's generally, I would say, can you make the pie or can you make the economy bigger? And then the second point of policy is, can you or are there places you want to redistribute the pie, I don't know, from the rich to the poor. So making the pie bigger is uh, making your economy more efficient or increasing the uh, inputs in more labor, more capital, uh, better land quality, and so on. So making the pie bigger is job one, I think. And then the second job is making redistribution to improve social welfare. So a a policy that improved the uh, capacity, so an education process, uh, policy that improved the capacity of folks in rural areas to be more productive w- would be an example of uh, efficiency in production, and then a policy that potentially redistributed taxes to support uh, education programs in rural areas might be uh, an example of this redistribution or this re-slicing of the pie. Yes, I think that's a good example. So I think the way I'd answer your next question is, what is rural about development in Mm -hmm. rural areas? And uh, if I can restate the question. And and so, you know, some people teach economic development, even Michael Porter was trying to say in one of his publications that, well, you know, economic development is economic development. Yeah, it might be a bit different in rural and urban areas. You've got to always situate yourself in your geographic situation. So whether you're in New York or uh, Guelph or Brandon, they all are, have urban functions of some sort, but they're all different in terms of linkages and density and so on. Uh, so, but maybe you can say economic development is always the same. You want to invest in human capital, you want to lower transactions costs, all the same things you want to do. But then the next question is, okay, what is rural about doing development in rural areas? And then I'd come back to the definition of rural. Well, what is rural is you've got to think low density. And what is rural, you've got to think long distance. So maybe Brandon certainly has long distance to the next city, a couple of hours at least to Winnipeg, for example. Uh, and maybe it has high enough density, it has a high enough density for a small university of three or 4,000 people but it does not have a high density enough for, I don't know, a faculty of engineering where you might have spin-offs in, in various high-tech innovations. So what is rural about development in rural areas? Then you want to think, okay, economic development is economic development, but it's different in low density and it's different with long distance to density. So in, in, in terms of the programs, that, uh, policies that have kind of dealt with this issue, you, you mentioned a couple, of, uh, there's, there's infrastructure, there's um, transportation investments, education investments. Um, are these different, do they have different effects in rural areas than they have in urban areas? 
first, I've never done any studies on that because not good numbers on that. So I have to give a short answer. I think the really short answer is I don't know. Uh, some things I think we might agree on that uh, that uh, uh, it's expensive to put in a road if there's only a few people going to use it. So you know, how big is the road? Uh, do you put a road in and then hope it develops, or do you wait for the place to develop and put in a road? Mm. Uh, and it's a catch-22. I don't know how you decide that. But the general issue is is that uh, infrastructure matters, and uh, the price of the infrastructure probably on a per capita basis might be higher, whether it's a water treatment plant, uh, whether it's putting in a community college and an education function, whether it's putting in a uh, small or medium-sized airport for a transportation function. Uh, all of those things uh, tend to be somewhat higher cost per capita in a rural area and then you know is there an equivalent term benefit from uh, efficiency point of view and is there a benefit from uh, the wealth redistribution point of view and uh, those are answers I do not know and uh, maybe if I read more of the studies I know more but I probably should pass on that or we could have a good discussion sure, on sure, it but sure, I don't have too enough. many facts to, I, don't have, I don't have good facts to contribute you know some of the stuff we've done on price of rurality one of the pieces done with a colleague here in statistics Canada was the price of transporting goods has been going down, but the price of transporting people has been going up. The uh, price of transporting communication, the transporting information has certainly gone down, except the price of stamps is going up, so or not going down, so the cost of ma- mailing a letter hasn't gone up, hasn't gone down. But the price of moving information has certainly gone. Now, uh, but the tacit knowledge, obviously, you don't. And we talked about that before. It's hard to move that over uh, internet or whatever. Uh, so moving people is up, moving goods is down, uh, moving information is down, and so on. So some prices of rurality have fallen. So that really brings one issue uh, up that, that you hear mentioned a lot. And I actually have a colleague in Ethiopia, and he was telling me that um, in, in rural Ethiopia, even where there aren't landlines uh, for telephones, people have uh, cell phones. And... Uh, yes. Um, so that seems to be, in, in a broad international sense, uh, the price of information, or at least some aspects of information, is going down. When I, I, I hear broadband, typically, as, as a big issue that comes up a lot of times when people are talking about um, uh, about rural development, the cost of information, the advantages that, that might give. Can you can you talk a, a bit about that? Well, again, I'm not too familiar with it. Certainly, uh, the bigger your metro center, the higher the speed of your broadband, because the bigger the return to investment for the person, uh, you know, building the faster networks. And uh, so, you know, the the connectivity in rural areas has increased dramatically over the last 10, 20, 30 years. but the speed in urban areas is always faster. So the urban connectivity prices are always lower. Uh, the capacity is, is always higher in urban areas. They're always going to have a quicker, faster, bigger ability to or ability to transfer bigger pieces of information than in rural areas. Always rural areas, in my view, is going to be increasing fast, but always behind urban areas in terms of broadband coverage and whatever the big words are for faster and faster, bigger and bigger broadband these days. 
It's a good it's a good news, bad news situation. Things are getting a lot better, but we'll never catch up to the urban. Something like the income situation, right? <laughs> okay, so the, the income the, the 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 speed is getting faster everywhere, but the relative speed is going to continue to of 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 access internet access is going to continue to be uh, cheaper in in urban areas. That's in it. rural areas. Oh, that, that's yeah, you, you said it better than I. That's good. One thing that that you've mentioned that that always that that always seems to be a tension in in rural areas that that I've worked with has been this both wanting to educate and better the people in the area and this fear of losing them, and and that's a real challenge because as you mentioned, for most of these areas, uh, they were settled for the export of commodities. And the relative price of labor has increased, so there's there's a natural there. In, people are incentivized to leave in part because of the history of the area, but the people there often are the, one of the challenges they face is to stop to almost stem this um, this uh, out migration. And what what can places that feel like they're losing? Uh, how should how sh- you know? Have you run into or are you, are you aware of any policy or approaches that that? that help address that situation, or, or do you have a take on it? Quick answer is probably not much. Uh, certainly the statistics say, gee, there's a lot of, quote-unquote, kids, teenagers leaving rural areas. And so I put up numbers, and I say, isn't that terrible? Oh, yes, it's terrible. And I think, yeah, it should be 100% kids leaving mm-hmm. rural areas. They should go out and get education and world experience, and then you want to try to attract them back. And uh, therefore, I have to quickly run for the back door of the rural hall because, <laughs> yeah, no, obviously, I don't know what I'm talking about. And and some of them are absolutely right. I don't know what I'm talking about because uh, somehow you want to keep people that are not interested in getting a PhD in agricultural economics because you'll never move back to a rural area. You want to try to inform kids, or I shouldn't say kids, youth and young adults, what are the opportunities in this area? And in this article with Bill Reimer, we pointed to a couple of articles where uh, analysts had gone into high schools and asked people in high school, tell me about the jobs in this community. Well, they didn't know that there were four accountants, uh, you know, two dentists, uh, five people with MBAs, uh, at least bachelors in ministry. This is administration running super, uh, running garages and so on. I mean, they didn't know that if they took these professional programs, that uh, there was no job opportunity back in their community. And and so one way is to, uh, to help kids understand just what are the options in in this community. One community I was in. In Russell, Manitoba, uh, I was sitting around the outside. I was going to give a talk later, and a fellow asked the chair, who was also new to the community, looked around. Twenty people, I think, sitting around the table. Quite an impressive turnout for somebody wanting to listen to statistics. He said, "How many people uh, grew up in this community? How many people were born and grew up in this community?" Twenty people around the table. One person. These are all business owners and generally or business development officers. One person out of 20 in mm-hmm. Russell, Manitoba had grown up and the other person said, well, can I put up my hand? I moved here when I was two years old. That's an amazing <laughs> so story. Amazing. He was surprised. I think a lot of the people around the table were surprised that there was so much immobility and that community was so attractive to both business owners and community development officers. So, you know, and that Russell, Manitoba may not be on your radar as a successful rural area. It is. 
you know, and there are a whole bunch of places like that. So can you keep or can you get people going away to get your bachelor's of business administration and coming back to your community? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's one thing you might focus on because some communities can bring in people that did not grow up there. So there, there are options. Well, on that up note, Ray, uh, I, I think we're, I'd like to give you the opportunity, if you want, to, to raise any issues that, that maybe I haven't uh, asked you about. But also, uh, I, you know, if you, as you look back over kind of your career and, and your own thinking about um, rural issues and you look to the future, I'd be interested if there's any lessons uh, that, that we should, you know, or issues that we should be thinking about for the future or, or lessons that maybe we people might forget and are worth kind of always keeping um, in the in the fore of our minds as we kind of work on these issues? That's a good question. Have I learned anything from all this? <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I guess one thing, uh, I think we talked about this people, Bill Reimer, we talked about a study done a while ago, uh, why do youth leave rural areas? They said, number one, jobs. Number two, education. Number three, fun. And then for the people that had left, they asked, what would cause you to return? Jobs was not number one. Jobs was not number two. What would cause you to return to a rural area, if you'd already come from a rural area, was number one was family, and number two was community, and, and we're not sure the difference between family and community. But it was a nice place to call home. Nice uh, if you're raising kids or having a family, you know, uh, just a good place to do that, and you want to be back into your social networks. So, uh, you know, maybe one thing to learn is uh, communities want to build on their diaspora. Find out who was in high school five years ago. Talk to the parents. What would it, talk, what would it take to get these kids that have been away from, high, from, from the town for five years, get them to come back? So, so that's, that should be one opportunity. Well, Ray, thank, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for the call, and thanks for the good questions.